You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Today on Startups for Good, I speak with Mara Cepeda, who is the managing director and co-founder of Zebras Unite. Before that, she was a founder of her own company, Switchboard, which she merged successfully. She's also started a number of other organizations, Business for a Better Portland, the city's fastest growing business organization, Accelerate with two X's, which is an entrepreneurship support program for Oregon women entrepreneurs. And she previously worked in journalism. She brings all of that to bear on rethinking in a real systems way, the incentives in the innovation ecosystem. She's thinking about how do we make it more inclusive, more international, more founder-led? How can a movement of entrepreneurs create a culture, build capital access vehicles and community for the next generation of the innovation economy? Their work was covered in a New York Times article in 2019 entitled, More Startups Have an Unfamiliar Message for Venture Capitalists, Get Lost. Now, I think that was somewhat sensationalizing what their true message is. And you should listen to what she says and read their materials, make up your own mind. But the article was calling out that there is an alternative path for entrepreneurs. Now, many pointed out, some VCs, that this is the normal path. The path that most people take is not to raise money for venture capitalists. So perhaps the New York Times article wasn't really um, accurate to portray that this was somehow something new or alternative. But I think there is something new, this sense that there can be other ways of doing it. Venture capital itself is only a few decades old in doing it the way we do it. And could there be other ways that exits happen, like exits a community, which we'll discuss? Could there be other ways that capital are provided to startups, like revenue-based financing or other alternatives, which we'll discuss? I think it's important, myself as a startup founder and now an investor, I think it's important to understand the criticisms of how the current innovation economy is not serving us well. Who is it leaving out? Where does it cause negative externalities? And to what extent are those things accidents, the behavior of bad people, or to what extent are those things baked into the system and part of the incentive structure, part of the way the game is played now? On my website, Venture Patterns, I have cataloged many of the common objections or criticisms of the Silicon Valley mindset and of venture capital. If you think we can change and improve the way we're approaching innovation, merely by changing which problems we focus on or changing who the people are involved. Maybe that will work. But listen to what Zebra Unite say and others who call for not just changing the players, but also changing the game. I think you'll enjoy Mara Cepeda on Startups for Good. Welcome to Startups for Good. Mara, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Miles. I would love to start with how did you decide to be a founder? I don't know if there was ever a decision about it. It was definitely not something that I I think of myself more as an artist. And so as someone that's creative by nature, 
that often means that when you see a problem or when you see something that frustrates you, you're compelled to fix it or you're compelled to make art about it. And so I guess I liken my journey closer to something that felt like it was, I was compelled to do it by creative expression. Definitely not because I had an innate interest in business or startups or entrepreneurship. My journey started when I was serving on the alumni board of my alma mater, Reed College, which is in Portland, Oregon. And it was right after the financial crisis. I was involved in the alumni board of Reed and we were seeing so many students and graduates that lacked economic opportunity. And this collided with a lot of what I was seeing on the ground at the time I was working as an economic reporter for National Public Radio. It became clear that there had to be a better way to create a marketplace of opportunity, especially in higher education and especially during that time. So a group of friends and I got together and we went to Reed's career services and alumni affairs department and we said, we, over the last 10 years since we've graduated, we've amassed a social network of connections and professional connections that can be of service to the entire alumni base, put this network and put us to work. And they didn't have a mechanism for doing that. It didn't occur to them to do it on the internet. <laughs> they thought that they could post on the bulletin board all of our resumes, which might solve the problem. And so the switchboard platform was born very much out of that lived frustration and I, I would say even now I'm, uh, I re I'm reticent to identify myself as an entrepreneur. I think of myself much more just as a community builder. And it so happens that organizations and companies are, are born out of that activity and service. So you've identified this need. Did you try other ways of solving it or was the only way to start a company? To solve the um, marketplace of opportunity in higher education? Yes. Idea? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The blog posts that have been written about that. <laughs> um, you know, originally it started as a bunch of social media properties. So we started something called Read Switchboard and we created a Facebook group, a LinkedIn group. A, so it was then called Storify, a Twitter account, a Gmail account. So someone would in, someone would DM us on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm looking for a bakery internship in Baltimore. And then we would cross post that on Twitter, Facebook, um, email lists that we were cultivating. And then someone would invariably reply on another channel and say, I have an internship. And then we would go into email and then we would match make them. And so we were doing this by hand for about a year as a volunteer organization of hand matching asks and offers. And believe me, if there were an existent platform at the time, this was around 2013, I certainly would have adopted it. Um, there was actually something at the time called Posterous, which could have been, but at any rate, long story short, um, we tried every avenue possible before my co-founder, Sean Lerner, and I reluctantly went into the business of creating a startup. And how did you decide to work with your co-founder? Hmm. Well, it's it a great story. Uh, we, as I mentioned, we were leveraging existing social channels at the time, and I tweeted out, hey, I'm looking for a developer. Um, I don't even think I had the language to know what I was looking for at that time. I think I said like, a programmer who knows CSS and HTML. <laughs> um, and my co-founder, Sean Lerner, who was following us on Twitter and had graduated from Reed uh, about a decade after I did, or a few years after I did, saw the tweet and wrote back and was like, hey, I'm a programmer and I've got a picture of um, Sangria and nothing else to do tonight. So we started to work on it, having never met each other um, asynchronously. I was in Florence, Italy at the time, and he was in California. And I was doing mock-ups in like Adobe InDesign and then would send him wireframes, um, which he would code. And so 
that was how we worked for the first six months or so. We met in person in February of 2013. And then, you know, we started to go down the path of not knowing anything about entrepreneurship or startups, really. Of course, Googled it and found at the time that the main incubator that you went to was Y Combinator. That really wasn't aligned with our values. And we ended up finding Portland Incubator Experiment. Um, the shorthand is PI. That was run out of Portland. That was our home city, you know, we or our home base, I should say, from having spent time there going to read. And so we applied to Pi and we were so fortunate to have gotten in. Uh, Pi in many respects is like the, it's a, it's a perfect incubator for Zebra companies. And we'll get into what Zebra means later on. Yes, we will. Um, <laughs> I love the name Pi. That's, that's great. I'm getting a real kick out of that. Yeah. And Rick, Rick Tarosi is the founder and it continues um, now in a virtual, in a virtual format. And he's a, one of the most phenomenal community builders that I've ever met. So fascinating that you were building in public for Switchboard and you were born remote um, to things that are in vogue today. Oh, yeah, that's true. I guess we were ahead of the curve. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> and while you were working on it, you had insights about the nature of the way people think about startups, generally practice startups, invest in startups. And was that the lore is that you met up with some others at SoCap um, and started talking about this. Is, is that right? It is. Yeah. So, you know, we Switchboard started and for the first few years was firmly in the higher education space. And for those of you that know about higher education um, and the higher education venture market, it's complicated if you want to blitz scale in that market because of the values that that um, that, that sector has. You know, you don't want to sell student data. You don't want to rely on an advertising um, an advertising model. You know, there are a number of ethical, what, what we believe to be ethical concerns in building for higher education. We didn't want to perpetuate the um, greed that we were seeing with other startups in that space. My co-founder um, of the Zebra Movement, which we'll get to in a minute, but a dear friend, Jennifer Brandel, and I were at SoCap. For those of you don't know that don't know, SoCap is a conference for social impact investors that takes place in, in San Francisco every year. And I reconnected there with my dear friend, Jennifer Brandel, who was sol solving nearly an identical problem, but in the journalism space, which was how do you shift the mindset of these siloed offices serving audiences to being in relationship and communication with and serving in more of a marketplace um, question, answer, ask, offer um, modality in journalism. So we met up at SOCAP and we were so disappointed to see just how few opportunities existed for companies that didn't fit the status quo of Silicon Valley blitz scale growth at all costs. And so we wrote a blog post in um, 20, 2016 called Sex and Startups. It was a very cheeky blog post that got a lot of attention because the opening line of it was um, startups like the male anatomy are designed for liquidity events. And from there, <laughs> we were off to the race. It races. is kind of risque, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were off to the races with the metaphor of seed capital and up and to the right. Um, and, and basically what it was arguing was that we had to think of different ways to grow companies that didn't only adhere to this growth at all costs model and um, proposed, you know, the yin and yang marriage of different ways of doing business in that article. And what was amazing was we heard from over 4,000 
founders, investors, allies, um, in response to that article who filled out a form saying what you've described is exactly the challenge that I'm facing. So we spent the next year uh, meeting those folks. I think you might have been one of them or you were referred to us by Kanye, I think, who said, you know, I believe too that there's a different way. And um, we interviewed hundreds of people and then wrote our next blog post, Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break, which was an effort to identify an archetype of the type of company that we were talking about in the form of a zebra. And tell us, what is a zebra? Yeah. So um, in the manifesto, which, which again is called Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break, we identified a couple of characteristics that were sort of in opposition to um, what, you know, traditional Silicon Valley is designing for. So um, rather than competition, we saw that companies that were emerging were working off of collaborative and cooperative models. The purpose of unicorns was very much about exponential growth, and we believed there was a path to sustainable prosperity. There was a sense of extraction and parasitism within unicorn companies, and we saw that there were founders building from a place a place of mutualism and regeneration. Um, and finally, it, you know, when it comes to who profits, uh, as we know, you know, there's sort of a winners and losers, investors get rich scheme in the unicorn model. And we were seeing that there were ways that we could create models where more people and stakeholders were would win. So it became more of a win-win. And whether that was users or early employees or all employees or the communities that they were serving. So that was kind of what the, the main idea behind the blog post was. And this became a movement. Indeed, yeah. So we published that blog post in 2017, joined by our uh, other co-founders, Astrid Schultz and Ania Williams, who were also founders and also experiencing the same pain that Jen and I were. And again, we heard from thousands of people after that post was um, published and saying the exact same thing, like in the process of getting more specific about what a zebra was, thousands of other investors and founders were aligning with this mission so in 2017, we hosted a conference called DazzleCon. A group of zebras is called a Dazzle, which is very fun. Who knew that? I know, <laughs> um, which is just a blast in Portland. And then have spent the next then um, spent the next two years kind of seeing how the movement wanted to unfold. And one thing that was really surprising that we were not prepared for, but has been so extraordinary is that the movement wanted to unfold in an international fashion. So it, I should really be saying zebras from now on, which is um, the pronunciation in the rest of the world. But we now have over 40 chapters on six continents. And so what was so extraordinary was you know, there were zebra identified, there are zebra identified founders in Japan and in Tokyo that have a chapter and their particular cultural flavor of zebra is that they have the most, the highest concentration of companies that are over a century old. We have um, zebras that are growing in uh, Germany and in Berlin, and that is affiliated with the uh, new Mittelstand movement, which is about these kind of locally owned businesses that are giving back to community. Um, we have zebra chapters in London and Scotland and Vienna. And when we learn about what they're doing, they are taking the umbrella of zebra unite, zebras unite principles. And they're then 
um, aligning the, the culturally specific flavor of that entrepreneurship expression within their own communities. So that was something that has been so surprising. And that's been our primary focus is how to support this international movement and then how to create the correct organizational structure that stays true to our values and that supports this international globally distributed um, movement and, and that shares ownership and governance with the members as well. Are there a particular set of beliefs or ways of doing business that a zebra company needs to subscribe to? Right now, no, it's not like, um, we're not like B Corp where we have a certification. Um, and I think when you ask that question, uh, what's so interesting about it is that if there ever were to be some type of stamp or accreditation, because we incorporate it as a cooperative, those principles would be co-developed with our community. So as of now, there's not one specific definition or set of criteria that you have to ascribe to. And we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. There are zebras that have raised venture capital. There are zebras that we believe will be unicorns and will have large exits, but are continuing to build by adhering to the zebra principles. So at this stage, we're as inclusive as possible. And the goal really isn't to certify companies. Um, it's to build the, the biggest tent that we can to serve what we think are actually the majority of entrepreneurs that are just building from a different place than simply being motivated by profit. If you're a founder who feels drawn to this, how do you know if you are building a zebra company? Well, I think um, the way that it's happened to date is to get involved with the community. And if what the community is talking about resonates and you feel that you have something to contribute, it's a, you know, it's a community movement. So that's the, as is the hallmark of any um, grassroots movement. Um, so what that looks like first is joining our online community. We have about 6,000 members of the online community. Um, if you're able to join a local chapter, joining a local chapter where there's a chapter lead who will sort of welcome you into the movement. From there, we've moved all of our programming online. So, you know, the programs we offered are, are around alternative capital, structured exits. We had a panel on the principles of Islamic finance um, as I mentioned, um, what we can learn from 100-year-old Japanese companies. So the programming that we do is, again, another signal um, that's been very positively received as members. And then what we're what's so timely about this conversation is at the start of the year, we'll be officially launching our co-op. And that allows you to be an owner and a decision maker and a stakeholder of the Zebras Unite cooperative. So how does that work? Well, it's very complicated, Miles. <laughs> it's been a real education. So as I mentioned, um, you know, we had DazzleCon, we built the international chapter structure. And then what we realized was like tr the traditional Delaware C Corp or the existent structures that, you know, traditional startup venture capitalists might be familiar with was not going to serve our movement. Um, one, we wanted to be able to reward people for what they were contributing. Two, um, you know, it was kind of the rock and the hard place between a C-Corp and a for-profit or a C3. Um, we were incubated under a C3, but that didn't serve, end up being the right structure. And I think three, we then wanted a mechanism for the founders themselves to own the means of production of capital. So to describe to you what that final structure is that we have designed over this last year, 
we have a C3, which is zebrasunite.org. That C3 has what's called a golden share within our multi-stakeholder cooperative. So we the co-op has to align with and meet the mission of the C3. That cooperative, for those of you that might not be familiar that are listening, you know, we are familiar with cooperatives when it comes to maybe our local grocery store or other small business. But over the last few years, there's been a growing movement to create something called platform cooperatives, which are ways that you can have community ownership of digital assets. Um, and so that's ultimately kind of what Zebras Unite is. And then that entire C3, um, or I'm sorry, that entire co-op is half owner of a joint venture of Zebras Unite Capital. So to put this in an easier language, you you can imagine coming in, joining as a member of ZU Co-op. You're a founder that's looking for financing. You're able to access different financing mechanisms through Zebras Unite Capital. As you, um, if whether that's investment or debt or whatever that mechanism looks like, as the returns are accrued, um, that goes those go back as dividends to the co-op, and then all of the co-op members share in those dividends. And so now, what you have essentially is a cooperatively owned pool of capital. And so what I've just described to you is a way to align incentives where the mission is aligned with the co-op and the co-op's activities are aligned with the mission. And then that entire enterprise is aligned with creating access to capital, which is a really key component of our activities. Thank you for walking through that. Yeah. I think also congratulations are in order because you're now full-time leading the organization, right? I am, yeah. I'm managing director of Zebras Unite starting um, this fall, and it's just been a total, total pleasure. I've started many things. I've been fortunate enough to, um, you know, I think I've started a company. I've gone through a merge, and I've started four organizations in the last uh, five years. And um, Zebra, the Zebras Unite Co-op is the one that I am. It's, a, it's, it's one of the most fascinating organizational challenges that I've been a part of. So I'm very grateful. And you mentioned those other organizations. Do you want to talk about any of those? I mean, sure, I can. I mean, the way I describe the body of work is kind of like a Russian nesting doll. <laughs> so, you know, you had Switchboard in the process of building Switchboard. It was clear that we needed a values aligned business organization, a chamber of commerce that in Portland um, that really recognized that commerce and community were inseparable. And rather than businesses taking the posture of being anti-tax or always um, you know, figuring out what's in it for them, there was a way that the business voice could be used to serve the rest of the community and there could be more of a mutualistic relationship. So I was the um, founding board chair of Business for Better Portland, which is now the city's fastest growing chamber of commerce. We have about 425 members. And in the process of doing that, um, you know, when I started to look for capital for Switchboard, it was very difficult. And that's when I became really interested in alternative finance and capital. Um, and we started a loan fund and educational program for women entrepreneurs called Accelerate. Um, and that has now served over 200 women entrepreneurs in Oregon. So I'm just terming out of being the founding board chair for that. Um, and then there's the the Zebras Unite suite of serve of you know the capital, um, the co-op, the nonprofit, and BBPDX has a nonprofit as well that I helped to found. I think that's congratulations on all yeah. that. <laughs> hey, uh, 
I, I think you have some very clever naming, um, Accelerate with two X's. So that's, people are looking for that. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. What's a startup tech nonprofit, you ask? A startup is an organization seeking to grow that is new. Tech, meaning using software to scale with lower to zero marginal costs. And nonprofit, meaning organized as a public charity. So support innovation by seeding nonprofits leveraging technology to scale. Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I'm curious, with the Zebra movement and in general, your personal mission, do you desire more to change Silicon Valley or just build around it? Mm. I don't think there's any changing Silicon Valley. I think the culture is what it is and it's it's an important culture. Um, in the in the media where zebras is, is oftentimes portrayed as anti-VC. And I wouldn't say that's our main argument. Um, the way that we describe it is we need a Cambrian explosion of experiments of all different types of capital mechanisms and corporate structures. We just need a lot more innovation around the containers and the capital. And so um, when you phrase it that way, what we end up attracting, who we end up attracting to the movement are innovators of a different order of magnitude that are really systems level innovation. And Silicon Valley, I think, is um, very focused on what it's, you know, what it's good at and what it's marketed itself to. And I wouldn't necessarily say that you find a lot of systems level innovators. Um, they're kind of looking for you know, the next big win, the home run, what one company is going to knock it out of the park. There's this, there's this laser focus on, you know, going big. And there's just, it's a completely different archetype of, I think, more sophisticated and nuanced investors and supporters around the zebra movement that are interested in systems interventions and systems change. And absolutely to your point around building around it, that means almost looking everywhere around Silicon Valley at all of these other incredible local experiments that are going on at the grassroots level that are largely overlooked, but I think are providing a roadmap for the future. And when you're talking about systems level change, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're talking about the incentives, the way that governance and uh, capital is structured so that uh, when an entrepreneur is making choices about business strategy, it's in that whole context and changing that context will change the decisions they're making. Totally. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so much of what's broken in the models that we're seeing even now with the U.S. election and the way that platforms are aiding the fall of our democracy has to do with misaligned incentives. As we started to dig into it at Zebras Unite, we really looked at the body of research that's taken place over the last 30 years around what's called multi-stakeholder initiatives. And um, we can I can provide you some resources, but essentially, you know, about 30 years ago in other sectors was this 
great outrage from the public, similar to what we see today with tech, whether it was, you know, where garments were the conditions under which the, you know, fashion industry was creating their garments or pollution of large industries. What was born out of response to that was something called a multi-stakeholder initiative. And the idea was, okay, before we you know, use regulation. And before we penalize these companies, we're going to allow them the opportunity to create a multi-stakeholder initiative, bring together a couple of those employees that work at the garment factory, a couple of nonprofit organizations and government organizations. And these initiatives were essentially a big table where more stakeholder voices could be heard. And um, a, a group out of Harvard just published research this last year arguing that all of those efforts failed, that this notion of having more stakeholders at the table did not materially improve conditions because those stakeholders did not have an ownership stake or a governance role in the enterprise. And what was so great about that research uh, that looked at other sectors was it has allowed us, especially in the tech sector, to leapfrog over any of those well-meaning committee type structures and get to the meat of equity and justice in these structures, which is really ownership and governance. That's what we have to be focusing on. Um, so that's where projects like what we're working on with Exit to Community come in. But um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, in answer to your question, it's um, like the, the systems intervention has to be born out of being honest about the ownership and, and governance structures. That's really where like the rubber meets the road. And so we're going to have a lot of mealy mouthed pledges, I think, over the next couple of years. Um, you know, the business roundtable pledge that came out last year of something like 200 of the top um, S&P CEOs saying that they wanted to consider more stakeholders. That was actually, you know, it's a powerful statement, but then the next follow-up question to that pledge has to be, well, how are you materially changing the ownership and governance of your enterprise? So tell us more about Exit to Community and how that changes the incentives and the ownership. Yeah. Um, well, that again is kind of a I feel like all, all these projects start out with like fluke meetings <laughs> at the right time at the right place. Um, Scott Hefferman, who is the founder of Meetup, was a friend of mine and is a friend of mine. And a year ago, um, as WeWork was going through its massive implosion and we saw the failure of this unicorn, we realized that Meetup, which was acquired by WeWork, was kind of like a distressed zebra or it was a it was a relatively healthy zebra that was held hostage within a distressed unicorn asset. And we went through this thought experiment at Zebras Unite, what would it look like if we put together a consortium of investors to buy Meetup and then to turn Meetup into a cooperatively owned structure, either through, you know, that included the employees, um, which a remarkable group of employees there, and the organizers at Meetup and attendees, what would it look like to turn Meetup into a platform co-op, essentially? We got relatively far down in this thought experiment, which was hysterical if you were to have like looked at our personal bank accounts at the moment <laughs> of time to um, have us going around, you know, trying to drum up tens of millions of dollars to buy Meetup. <laughs> but we ended up finding a core group of investors and um, things went somewhat relatively far down the path. And the main um, challenge there was the 
the nuts and bolts, the operational nuts and bolts of how you would what, exit to community, how you would take this company and go through, you know, what protocols in order to eventually make it community owned. And at the same time, Nathan Schneider, um, who's a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder's Media Enterprise Design Lab, was writing about this notion of exit to community, which was, you know, how can we take these companies, maybe they're called, you can call them zombie companies, if that's um, familiar parlance, but it's the majority of companies, you know, if so few companies actually go on to raise follow on rounds of venture, what you have is the lion's share of our economic output in the in the venture space. If it's not raising follow on financing, we need to figure out a way that those companies can be profitable and sustainable and serve more people. So this exit to community notion came about and um, over the last year, we hosted a series of events that looked at from many different sectors and angles, the logistics behind how you would exit to community. And then all of that wisdom was collected in a zine that we just published, a free zine um, that's over 70 pages of interviews, case studies, worksheets, um, kind of the roadmap for how you would go about exiting to community. And that has then turned into a cohort of about 25 companies um, that are interested in, in exiting their company to community or just understanding those principles from the outset um, so they understand that that's an alternative that they might pursue in the future. And just to clarify and to be really clear, when you're talking about exit to community, you mean the users or customers buying the company? Is that right? It could be buying or it could be that you set up a structure that way to begin with. Um, so first of all, yeah, what do we mean by community? It's different for every company, right? There might be some companies where it's just the employees, others where it's a user base, others where it's both, others where it might be um, the local community has a, a big stake in your company. So when we say community, it's a different definition for every company. And when we say exit, Yes, there's also many different definitions for that. It might be that right now your company, maybe you're a founder, um, you've been building for the last few years, you see this incredibly strong community and you wanna figure out, yeah, how can you create a succession plan so that the people that helped you to build that company are rewarded with ownership? Or what we're also really interested in is early on, how can you create a corporate structure? How can you decide on a corporate structure if this is of interest to you? that doesn't hamstring you. Um, a Delaware C-Corp is probably not the corporate structure that you want to choose if what you're ultimately trying to design for is multi-stakeholder ownership. So we're interested in intervening kind of kind of at every stage of the journey. Um, early, you know, early founders that are just trying to look for alternatives to the traditional Delaware C-Corp. And then founders, um, you know, again, the lion's share of which are out there may have raised some initial seed capital and are realizing that they don't want to pursue the venture path and what is a, a more broadly distributed way of creating ownership for their community. Gotcha. So we're talking about planning ahead for a transition <laughs> in the company. I think we're talking about planning ahead. I mean, we're talking about planning ahead. We're also just talking about reimagining capitalism itself. So if the business model is the message and we recognize that these hyper growth venture fund funded models have pretty significant dire consequences and you are a founder that has, you know, an ethical compass that is misaligned with those incentives. I think what's 
important above all is that there's widely available education about all of these alternatives and you're able to make a more informed decision than just um, following, you know, the traditional startup status quo. And I think that the work that you're doing with venture patterns is also a part of, you know, that broader educational body of work that's so critical. Yeah, we're certainly exploring the mental models and the patterns that reoccur in startups and venture investing and explore alternatives, traditional VC like revenue-based financing. I'd love to learn more about co-ops and I've been doing reading on Exit's community, but have more to learn myself. I'd love to hear your thoughts on different forms of investing or providing capital into uh, these organizations, um, you know, the alternative to VC or traditional Silicon Valley funding. Yeah, I mean, they're honestly, um, there's they're just emerging, which I think is another important um, aspect to emphasize. So um, what I would encourage folks who are listening to do is if you Google alternative um, capital taxonomy, that's a project that uh, my co-founder Astrid Schultz has been working on. And um, it provides essentially like the, the um, like a spectrum of capital that's available. And I guess the thing to emphasize there is if you're thinking about capital on a spectrum and you're thinking about risk, there's low risk forms of capital like grants. And then there's capital that's, a, that, you know, kind of from there. So that's kind of the lowest risk is like, would it be possible to incubate my idea with grants so that I'm not originally beholden to investors? Then you move into the debt space and that might be asset-based lending or cash flow lending or leasing. The mezzanine debt structures, which we're familiar with, um, which might be revenue-based financing, redeemable equity, profit shares, dividends. And then there's the highest risk capital, which as we know is convertible notes, safes, equity, that bucket of equity. So just alone, that spectrum of capital um, then shows you, okay, well, where do I sit within that continuum? And exactly to your point, you know, more and more, there are starting to be alternatives. You mentioned revenue-based financing, which is a loan that's repaid as a percentage of revenue. There's also um, something called variable payment obligations where investors earn a percentage of revenue until they achieve a certain multiple. There's redeemable equity where investors can purchase shares that can be redeemed by a company at a pre-agreed multiple. Um, so yeah, there's there's a multitude of these different experiments. If people want to learn more, again, I would recommend um, Googling the uh, alternative capital taxonomy, which you can also find on our website. And we just did a program about this um, called Structured Exits, which if you if you go to our Crowdcast channel, you, you'll be able to watch the replay of. So when you think about someone who's considering joining the Zebra movement, if they want to grow their company, does that mean they fit or not? Absolutely. No, there's, um, you know, there's a number of examples of high growth zebra startups. When we did our survey, there were companies in there that had, I think, upwards of $500 million in revenue. Um, so it's more of a psychographic than it is like a specific demographic. Um, the like, What brings them together is that they're growing. They're not, they're not wanting to grow within this traditional Silicon Valley hyper growth model. 
because if you adopt some of those practices, those practices have grave and unknown unintended consequences. And most importantly, they perpetuate economic inequality. So as most people know, in order to invest in the lion's share of these equity instruments and funds, you have to be an accredited investor. And so investments that are made under the accredited investor um, equity mechanism are making rich people richer. So there are founders that are interested in exploring how they grow their companies in ways that don't necessarily double down on economic inequality. So that means that, of course, their companies are growing. You know, um, we see incredibly healthy growth. It's not, you know, it may not be that it's not 10x growth because um, they're they're, they're having to make trades, right? They're having to to trade off hyper growth because they, what we learned in the survey was that many and many founders did chose not to raise venture capital because they did not want to make the trade-offs and sacrifices that were involved with raising venture. And then that means that you have to grow more slowly, you have to find alternative capital, or you have to rely on revenues in order to grow your company. So absolutely, these are um, growing companies, healthy companies, but it's the mental model, I think, of a, of a level of founders that have the sophistication um, a nuance to understand the trade-offs that are involved in the venture model and are are, determ- are determined to not um, make those trade-offs and to invent, if they have to, alternatives that actually meet their needs. Wonderful. I would love to hear your thoughts on any reading or videos online that people should watch if they're aspiring entrepreneurs or aspiring zebras. Um, yeah, specific to the zebra movement, or I think in general, or specific as as you like. Yeah, I mean, so specific to the zebra movement, we have so many resources for you. If you go to zebrasunite.coop, uh, we have a podcast that interviews zebra founders called ZebraCast. The Exit to Community cohort you can find, um, and that is a whole community of practice that you can learn about and join from an alternative capital perspective. You'll also find on the Exit to Community page, um, the last years of worth of, pro- of programming, are, uh, those videos are archived. On our Crowdcast channel, we have, um, I think, over a dozen different programs that we've hosted through Zebras Unite around alternative capital, structured exits, every topic that we've kind of discussed here. And those are video recordings that are available under Crowdcast. We have our Medium channel. Um, we publish uh, about twice a year sort of rallying cries and manifestos that really um, are transparent about the direction that we're moving as a company, as a, as a cooperative. The last one that we published in August was called Pivot to People. It's time to build a new economy. And then from a resources perspective, um, there are so many thinkers that have um, helped to inform this movement. It's almost difficult to name them all. Uh, Carol Sanford is one who works in sustainable and regenerative business. The work that Zingerman's has done around really centering the experience on employees and um, customers. They have a training program called ZingTrain. The work that NDVC has done has obviously been very influential. NDVC was one of the first investors into a co-op called Savvy Co-op, which we did a program about, which you can find under Exit to Community. There are so many communities of practice, it's almost difficult to 
to name them all, but um, we have a resources page on our website as well. And that directs um, that directs folks to a lot of work as well. And also it goes without saying, and this is probably the first thing that I should say, um, that indigenous and native communities have been organizing in this way. Um, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to um, the way that they've organized their communities and all of cooperative structures and this notion of um, mutualistic enterprise is very much born out of um, time-tested and time-honored traditions from um, indigenous communities. And so it's, you know, if you want to go to the source, honestly, like become interested in and familiar with those type of principles as well. well on that note of gratitude and inspiration, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Miles. It was a pleasure to speak with you. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.